What I love about running and what I love even more about running than I ever loved about dancing is how human it is. It's a fundamental human gait. We, we crawl, we walk, we run. Technically, apparently, skipping is also another gait, but we run. But um, so when you get better at it, I mean, for myself, I just felt more human. I mean, at that point in my life already, like I had been through so many movement methods in trying to get myself together as a dancer. So much yoga, client technique, gyrotonics, Alexander, you know, like Traeger, everything that was out there I had done practically that I could find. And that was a lot. And it all had effects, gave me different sensations. You know, there's a certain way that I feel after I do yoga. Um, but after I run, I feel realized I feel more human as in a member of my species. It's really pronounced, really profound. And I really love working with that more than anything else. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome or welcome back to the Morning Shakeout podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Jay Grunke. Jay is a highly sought-after expert on running form and technique. She's also a Feldenkrais practitioner, founder of The Balanced Runner, and has helped countless runners from beginners to Olympians improve their form and performance since 2003. I've been following Jay's work for a little while now, and I recently found out that she doesn't live far from me, so we sat down at a local park and had a conversation that I think you'll really enjoy and take a lot away from. We talked about what it is that she does exactly and how Jay uses the Feldenkrais method of movement to help runners with their technique. She told me how she got into running after years as a professional dancer and how solving her own problems led her to working with others who were navigating similar issues. We discussed what mainstream publications miss when it comes to running technique, common places where runners go wrong, and what she considers to be the six elements of good form. We also got into cadence, the influence of footwear, the analyses she does on elite fields and major races, and a lot more. Before we dive in, I'd like to give a shout out to the sponsors that helped make this episode possible. First, a big thank you to Gatorade Endurance. Look, even without a normal racing schedule, many of us will take an off-season this time of year where we back off the training a bit and go on less intense runs to refresh ourselves physically and mentally. And while your priorities might shift, it's still important to make sure that you're fueling yourself properly. Gatorade Endurance offers a variety of products to help you fuel on the go. I've been using their Endurance formula recently to ensure that I'm adequately energized and hydrated before enduring some of my workouts. I love the watermelon flavor, and it's also available in lemon-lime, orange, and cherry. I look forward to trying out some of their other products in their innovative and diverse line, like energy gels, energy gels with caffeine, and carb energy chews, as Gatorade Endurance offers multiple fueling options that you can adapt to serve your energy and hydration needs. Check out and try some for yourself this off-season. Use the code SHAKEOUT20, that's SHAKEOUT20, and get 20% off your purchase at GatoradeEndurance.com. That's GatoradeEndurance.com and use the code SHAKEOUT20, that's SHAKEOUT20, when you check out and you'll get 20% off your purchase. Also, I'd like to thank Inside Tracker, which I've been using to keep tabs on my blood work the past two years in an effort to optimize my nutrition and subsequently my health, performance, and recovery. 
Today, more than ever, it is essential that we are making the right decisions to keep our bodies healthy, be resilient, live better, or simply take on whatever the day may throw at us. The answers are inside you. Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood and DNA biomarkers along with your lifestyle habits to help you optimize your body and reach your goals. As we head into the holiday season, take advantage of Inside Tracker's best deal of the year and take control of your health and wellness with $200 off the Ultimate Plan, which is their most comprehensive package. Use the code GIFT FROM MORN SHAKEOUT. That's GIFT FROM M-O-R-N SHAKEOUT at insidetracker.com or check the show notes to make sure that you get it right. Okay, let's dive right into this one with Jay Grookey. Jay Grunke, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. I am delighted to speak with you for a number of reasons. This is my first in-person, I shouldn't say conversation, but podcast conversation that I've had since the end of February. So it's a real treat to be sitting outside here with you in beautiful Ross, California uh, for this conversation. So thanks for making the drive. Oh, I was so excited to meet with somebody in person. (laughs) I can't tell you. (laughs) I know how that goes. My, My own interactions have been fairly limited in scope, but every time that I'm able to, or I've been able to go for a run with someone or sit down like this for just a longer conversation, it energizes me for at least another week. And I feel like I'm good. Like the batteries are charged and I can go for a little bit longer. Um, To anyone listening to this, there is a dog barking in the background. We are sitting in a park, so I apologize for any background noise, but I'm really interested to talk to you today and learn more about exactly what it is that you do, because I I'm fascinated by your work, but I can't explain it. So why don't we just start with that? Uh, Sure. So, um, uh, yeah, my business is The Balanced Runner. And uh, what I do is help runners with their form, basically. Though I had to learn to say that that's what it was that I was helping people with. I'm a Feldenkrais practitioner. Uh, No one ever gets that on the first time, especially in a party setting. (laughs) Is a Felden what? Um, So it's a a movement education method named after its creator, Moshe Feldenkrais. And um, it's not specific to running. So um, I use that as a tool and I've worked out a lot of ways to really bring, to help runners use it as a tool in a way that really directly impacts their running in a very perceptible way. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of my work. But the method itself is used to help, you know, um, babies born with with cerebral palsy, people with MS, um, Parkinson's, um, people who've had accidents, people who have back pain. Um, Then, you know, for performance across a wide range of fields, my background is a dancer and that's where I first encountered it. And it got me out of really severe Achilles tendonitis and back to um, dancing and performing again. So people even do it with animals. So it really uses um, the way the way motor learning actually works. And that's what makes it so um, different from what uh, uh, comes from within the running field. Talk to me about your initial experience with Feldenkrais. You mentioned how it was while you were still dancing very seriously. Why did you seek it out or how was it introduced to you? Sure. Um, so I I was totally hobbled by Achilles tendonitis, both feet. Um, it just got worse and worse. I had to 
uh, stopped dancing. Um, uh, I eventually quit my waitressing job, you know, um, and uh, and uh, I had a year of physical therapy and it didn't get any better. Um, what I now know was not good physical therapy, actually, but still. Um, and uh, then um, I had a I went to a doctor for a second opinion or a reevaluation who told me I had a heel deformity. Actually, this is something that's come up um, in the last year with Galen Rupp, uh, Haglund's deformity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gwen Jorgensen, and, too, I believe. Uh-huh. Quite oh, a few I top realize. athletes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Actually, I was really interested to see that come up because so this orthopedist who works with basketball players, not dancers, um, told me I had this deformity. I would probably always have Achilles tendon problems. There was no point in physical therapy. I needed to take at least another two years off of dancing and I might never dance again. That sounds pretty hopeless. (laughs) Yeah. So I went into a tailspin of despair and luckily, um, I I was working in a hospital at the time and um, my boss uh, was talking with a friend, who uh, a pulmonologist, who called me and said, look, you don't know me, but you need to see Franya. <laughs> I heard your story and you need to see Franya. Um, you know, sometimes a, a good busybody is what you really need. <laughs> Someone butting in with just the right information. So she was a, Franya Zins was a physical therapist who um, was a Feldenkrais practitioner and did just straight Feldenkrais. And um, so I went to her and I was walking without pain in six weeks. And um, it was actually eight months before I went back to dancing because I uh, had made a work commitment. And But when I did go back to dancing, I was a much better dancer than I'd ever been before. Like all the technical things that I had always struggled with because I started dancing late in college, they were just... They were just there for me. And um, I had, a tr- I, instead of struggling with my body, I had this kind of freedom that I knew, I knew that dancing should have. And I had always been looking for, but I had never found it. And um, that's when I started then getting the jobs that I wanted and really being able to have the career that I wanted. So, When you were first introduced to Franya and the Feldenkrais method, did you have any hesitations or was it hard for you to buy into that approach? I was all in for whatever was going to help. Okay. And in fact, I'd, I'd always felt that the physical therapist that I'd been dealing with before um, uh, just didn't have the information that I needed that I knew was out there. Like I, I, in my dance training, I had encountered people who were able to assess movement and I and identify reasons for problems. But my physical therapist told me that no one could say why I had Achilles tendonitis. It was just something with my Achilles. Um, and I knew that was wrong, but I just, this was like, this was a long time ago. I couldn't just look, find a search on the internet and find somebody. It wasn't, you know, that information wasn't so easy to access. And uh, so I didn't know how to find that person. So um, I was ready and waiting for the information. And it sounds very much like an alternative sort of underground type of treatment that even today with the internet and the ease of being able to find things isn't something, I mean, I hadn't heard of it until Nate Jenkins, who introduced us, mentioned it to me. I'm like, I have no idea what the hell you're even talking about. And I had to go down the internet rabbit hole. But back when you were first introduced to it, I mean, unless someone told you about it or it got around by word of mouth, you probably wouldn't have any idea what this method was. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I was a modern dancer, so I was already 
you know, not in the mainstream. Sure. <laughs> so, so you know, the, again, this kind of information flows through that community, mm-hmm. especially also because, you know, it's a community of people with no health insurance and no money and lots of, lots of physical needs. You so, know, so from a hands-on perspective, when you started working with Franya, what were some of the things that she was having you do or starting to unwind or explaining to you in terms of the, the root of your Achilles trouble and how you were eventually going to get past it? Well, you know, it's funny. She practiced in a really different way from how I practice. And so there wasn't really much of that. She looked at me. She looked like she saw something that um, was relevant and important. And then she just asked me to lie down on her table and she started gently moving me and it felt really nice. It felt incredibly healing. And um, we chatted about her little boy and, you know, dance and whatever else. And I got up and it was like an Alice in Wonderland experience. Like I just, just like I got up off the table with a different body than I laid down with and um, I was walking very differently and she was just looking at walking to begin with and um, like it I don't know it just happened it was really weird every once in a while it was a little a little um, John Cleese department of silly walks like every once in a while I would walk out of there feeling like like I'm walking really strangely and I don't know how to change it so it it, it was an experience of uh, yeah, like I would just, it was just, uh, say it again, it was just a different body every time I walked out of there, um, but, a, but a, a, a much more comfortable one. And so I just went with it. And um, I don't work that way because I know that um, runners who are, who are interested in form, who feel like form is involved in the problem that they have, which is a conclusion people kind of have to come to before mm-hmm. they decide that I'm the one to help them, um, uh, normally have thought, have read, they've been reading Runner's World and, you know, whatever. Um, uh, maybe they have a coach who's working on form with them. Um, and so th- their heads can be full of ideas about how they're supposed to be moving. And um, I've, I learned very early on working with runners that it's important to really address that. You know, I, I want... I want you to come out of the lesson with a completely different body than you came in with, a much better one. Um, But I also want you to be able to put uh, intellectual understanding on top of that, some understanding of what happened and, you know, if things shift or if it slips away, how do you find it again? And, um, And which ideas that you maybe have encountered before and probably will encounter again uh, frankly, you should reject because they will interfere with this wonderful change that just happened. When did you decide that you wanted to go down the path of becoming a Feldenkrais practitioner yourself? When I got tired of serving food to people. <laughs> so um, I was a professional dancer. As a modern dancer, you pretty much always need a side job. Um, so waitressing. Had, yeah, exactly. Waitressing, bartending. You know, I was doing um, admin, running clinical trials in a hospital, like uh, the juggling act. And eventually, sounds the, similar uh, to a lot of professional runners, actually. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, and I know how hard it is when you know your 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 real vocation puts a lot of demand on your body, mm. and then you can't get the rest you need as well, you know, have, have, have other demands that have to be met for money. But, um, 
but yeah, absolutely. I think there's so many parallels between my my experience as a professional dancer, and again as a modern dancer, you know, which is a field where yeah, there's there there are very few jobs in the entire country that are actually a living wage. I mean, I made occasionally at my top earning potential, I made about what you'd make at Starbucks hourly. So um, anyway. Uh, yeah, so I decided to become a personal trainer. Like a friend was working for a personal training company mm-hmm. and they were hiring. And so I went in um, and uh, it was house calls and a lot of my clients were people chronically ill or elderly. And I really liked that work um, and uh, really hated gyms. <laughs> and I really realized pretty quickly that what I really wanted to do with people is um, I wanted to do for them what Franya did for me. And so then my course was clear. Do you look at your practice as a type of healing? Yeah, you know, that's um, that's a little bit of a hot-button issue for Feldenkrais practitioners mm-hmm. because, um, the, it's an, because it's an educational method. And so the effects are tremendously healing, but they come about um, first by the nature of the interaction that I'm not going to correct you, I'm not going to lecture you, I'm not going to try and get you to force yourself to do something that is against your your um, uh, best understanding of a safe and healthy way to move, um, because you're trying to stay alive. You're trying and you're trying to not get injured. And we think of injuries as you know minor problems now, but in most of human history, that was the thing most likely to result in your death. Um, and we still feel that, mm-hmm. you know. And I um, and uh, so there are very, there are, are are very important reasons why you're moving the way that you do, and uh, if I interact with you in a way that, to try and make you um, overcome that or force yourself to do something different or layer a whole nother level of muscular tension on top of that so that you are fighting your body more, that stresses you um, and it solves nothing. Um, so if I do the opposite, if I first meet you on the level of um, you are doing the very best that you can and my commitment is to helping you feel that you're safe and in fact safer and safer and more capable and more and more capable, um, that feels tremendously healing and it also resolves problems. So in that sense, yes, it's totally healing what I'm doing. What does the educational process of becoming a Feldenkrais practitioner look like? It's a four-year training program. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons that there aren't as many Feldenkrais practitioners as there are Pilates teachers. And I mean, and not to diss those fields, but it's just like you're really signing on for a lot. It's a commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's not not full-time because you can only digest the stuff so fast. So that's what makes it possible for... But um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, first... You can't help anyone learn something that you can't feel yourself. And um, you also, if there's so much noise in your system from um, moving poorly and struggling with yourself, then you can't feel what anyone else is doing. So a lot of it is just immersive, um, you know, experiential learning yourself um, using materials. I mean, Moshe Feldenkrais, um, uh, uh, a, a lot of the the resources that we have to work with are are lessons that are transcripts of lessons that Feldenkrais taught, um, either in workshop formats. He he lived in Israel in the later part of his life, um, and he taught throughout um, the United States and Europe. Uh, 
but then he also had a studio in Tel Aviv and he taught four classes a day there when he was there and mm -hmm. he recorded all of them. And so we have a still not fully translated um, a repository of many, many lessons. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, and there are, and so it, it forms an enormous body of work about how humans can coordinate themselves. And um, it offers this kind of context-sensitive learning where you learn exploratorily um, um, how to coordinate yourself and then you apply that information differently depending on what it is in your life you're trying to do. So um, uh, running, like the, you can do a Feldenkrais lesson and um, go for a run and what you learn in that lesson you'll employ in your running mm -hmm. and it'll change how you run. And then you can get in your car and turn around to back your car up and see much more easily behind you than you did before from the same lesson. So there, so, um, so we do a, we lie down on the floor and do a tremendous amount of these lessons um, and become familiar with, yeah, I don't know. Um, we don't really categorize them but let's say the various uh, a wide range of types of lessons and kinds of movement and then that's the first two years and then um at the end of those two years you become certified or you have a pass a test to be allowed to teach group work um uh giving verbal lessons verbal instructions so and that's primarily since i teach mostly online now that's the modality that i mm -hmm. use because i can't touch people through the internet um and uh, then you spend your second two years uh training and getting certified to um teach through touch and so that's one-to-one -one, um and that's um that's a fairly demanding skill so and right so that hopefully that gives you a <laughs> general overview no, that makes sense yeah are there pillars of the Feldenkrais method, if you could pin it down to two, four, six, however many things? Um, there are principles, I suppose. Okay. I mean, and, and some of them are principles about learning and, in, and learning how to learn. And then there are, I, there are um, movement principles that you could kind of see as an overview um, uh, uh, one movement principle that was very helpful for me in in understanding how running works and um, solve, and getting myself to where I felt like I could enjoy running is that all well-organized movement uh, conducts force all the way through to the head. And that um, f uh, when looking at runners already means that I'm looking through a completely different lens mm -hmm. than most people are looking at running form. Who um, don't think that far north. <laughs> um, so that would be one. Um, uh, uh, my, my teacher used to joke that to a Feldenkrais practitioner, there's no one body part that's more important than any other body part. But if there were, it would be the pelvis. So that um, movement of the pelvis is fundamental to pretty much anything you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and that, again, means that when I look at running, I'm approaching things very differently from, say, someone trained in Pilates. Um, and, uh, uh, another one that's really important and especially for runners is that you don't, you, you should not substitute strength for skill. Nothing wrong with strength, nothing wrong with training for strength, but don't use strength instead of skill. That, um, well-coordinated movement feels easy. 
and feels easier than worse coordinated movement. And you can track improvements in coordination by does it feel easier, does it feel more comfortable? And a Feldenkrais practitioner will ask you that over and over again as you're doing a lesson um, because you're finding in your own body experientially what does feel easier, what does feel more comfortable, and then that's you've learned something new about coordination that's mm. going to make a difference in your life and your running. Um, uh, so most of us, if we, ha if we struggle to do something, uh, we try to get stronger at it. You know, and that's uh, for a runner. Um, if you want to get faster and you struggle with speed, you would train for that. Now, of course, you need to train for that. But the, the, thing, the things holding you back may not entirely be fitness related. They may also be coordination related. And you can't, you can't um, train, you can't strengthen your way out of that. You need to learn your way out of that. So that's, that's another critical principle. Let's hit pause right there and take a pivot. You mentioned how you were a competitive dancer. That was your introduction to Feldenkrais method. What was your introduction to running? When did that come into your life? So I, um, I was working for a choreographer who was doing pieces, site-specific pieces in large outdoor spaces, which meant no curtain, no wings. You're never off stage. Um, a lot of dance is, you know, do some intense things. It, it's, it's kind of an anaerobic. It's a sprint thing, you know? You mm -hmm. do some intense things on stage and then you exit and catch a breath and run back out again, you know? Um, but this was just, this was aerobic. This was out there running around in a big park for 30 minutes. And I'd never really had a demand like that as a dancer. And I, would, I was just dying by the end of performances. And you don't want to be dying by the You want to still, like, be able to make artistic choices by minute 29, you know? So I thought, I need to train for this. I need to develop my aerobic capacity. Endurance, yeah. And so the obvious thing was running. But it felt horrendous. And that really pissed me off because I started dancing in college, um, you know, and... You know, I, I've told you a bit about my journey. You know, I really struggled with my body. I really struggled to learn technique. That's very late to start, for especially for a woman. Um, uh, though that's more on the professional side of there's so much competition. Um, uh, so, but I had I had conquered all of that. I could do all kinds of things that normal people can't do, but I couldn't run. And running is a fundamental human gait. And somehow in the middle of a of choreography, you know, I could run from here to there, but um, I couldn't go out for a run and have it feel okay. I just it, I just felt like a ton of bricks every time I hit the ground, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I could see that other people looked comfortable and seemed to enjoy their running. And um, so I started try to try, like I had to solve so many technical problems as bringing an adult mind to learning how to dance, which is something people do normally as a child. Mm -hmm. So I was already used to... Kind of in that like, mode. Yeah. I mean, that, and a dancer thinks about technique. So for me, the first question was, technically, what am I, I doing differently doing? from them? Mm -hmm. And... Um, it, it took me years of honestly working with runners before I realized runners don't ask that question. <laughs> so if I can interject here, you're 100% right. And yeah. I started running in high school initially to get in shape, similar to you, like to develop better endurance for the basketball 
season that was to follow. And we didn't have a good program, didn't have a good coach. It was just, hey, go run this two and a half mile loop on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, we would race. There was never that type of instruction. And then I eventually stopped playing basketball and I continued down this running path. And, and I noticed, it took me a long time, but I noticed that that was what it was about in running. Go out and do this workout. Go out and run this many miles. Oh, maybe we'll get in the weight room. There was never really any attention paid to technique. And it really wasn't until I met my wife who grew up as a swimmer and has been in the pool since she was four years old doing drills and focusing on technique. That's the first thing that you do as a swimmer is you hone your technique. And then from there, you develop your fitness and you learn how to compete and all that, all those sorts of things. And it just like that's when it struck me. I'm like, oh, that's not how that's not how running works. And a lot of other sports work that way. It's about, hey, this is this is the technique. Here's how you do it properly, which I know is a loaded word. Um, and then we build upon that foundation. Whereas a lot of running coaches, not all of them, there's some very good ones out there now who realize that this this error in their ways and emphasize form and start working on technique very early on. But by and large, that's not the case in, right. in running. And I'm certainly guilty of it as well as a coach and an athlete myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then then the, also then the trouble with well, the trouble in running, but also honestly, the trouble in in pretty much every field is even where you're focused on technique, you know, where there's a lot of thinking and talking and um, working on technique. Um, is it the right stuff? You know, and uh, are, are we right about what is technique? Mm -hmm. So as a dancer, I would, you know, and even as a professional dancer, you still do this. You go to class every day because that's that's really your workout that kind of keeps you balanced and it keeps all the movement possibilities there for you and it warms you up and then you go to rehearsal in the afternoon. Um, and so you start every day, again, plie. Where's my plie? Where's my center over my, you know, where's my turnout? You know, every day. And every day it's a little bit different. And every day you have a teacher looking at you and correcting you. And... Um, and I learned as, as I was struggling to learn how to dance as, you know, a young adult, um, I realized that like at least half of what they're telling me was just impossible. And furthermore, they didn't seem to do it themselves. Um, and it, it's taken me many, many, many years to figure out what's up with that, you know. And, and I think what it is, and this is again from Moshe Feldenkrais, like the, the things that we do with great skill are the things that we... Um, we don't even know how we do. They just seem to happen. It's just effortless because effortlessness is a, is a, is a hallmark of skill, the same way easy as a hallmark of coordination. And um, the stuff that we struggle with a bit, we're more aware of how we do it. And that's the stuff that people tend to teach, the stuff that they themselves are, have to think about because they've, because our skill tends to be invisible to us. And so that's where people feel their skill resides. And so what you have is generations of teachers teaching the dodgy stuff, <laughs> teaching the stuff that replicates their own struggle really mm -hmm. and not their success. And that happens across the huge range of fields. And this is where I'm enormously fortunate to have the Feldenkrais Method as a tool um, uh, because it lets me get past that. 
When you started running, had you already experienced the Feldenkrais method? I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to understand in terms of timing how those things lined up. Yeah. So that was um, a number of years after my own healing experience with the Feldenkrais method. You know, so I was in the full flow of the career that I wanted to be having at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, and had had started uh, training to become a Feldenkrais practitioner. Okay. So I was doing that on the side. So actually that, and that's the piece that allowed me to figure out how to run, is that I used my professional training program as my laboratory to work out what the difference was between what I was doing and people who seemed to run comfortably and gracefully. And, um, you know, I would just do a lesson and then I would go for a run and I would see what happened, you know, same as I would get off the table when I first was with Franya and I would be walking differently. Well, I'd go for a run, I'd be running differently. Does it feel better or worse? And I had a couple of real breakthrough lessons where I suddenly understood what I should be doing in a completely new way. And those are lessons that I still call on regularly um, for my students and my clients. And, um, and and I learned that a lot of what I, this is, this gets back to your question about fun, Feldenkrais principles. You know, one of them is what is good movement is entirely dependent on what it is you're trying to do. There's no like, it's always good movement. And I feel like, you know, again, among, I was come off as bashing Pilates teachers and I don't mean to, but I feel like, again, sort of in that field, mm-hmm. there's a like, no, this is always good. And even like Alexander and, you know, it's like, uh, you know, acti- having your core active is always good. Having your shoulders back is always good. Well, no, it's not if you're trying to dribble a basketball. So it's all specific. Um, and so in, in that process, I learned that the movement habits that I had worked so hard to develop as a dancer that were essential for doing ballet-based dance technique, totally at odds with what's needed to run. run. Mm-hmm. And they were invisible. They were habits. I didn't know I had them. And so it's when I, I, I learned how to shift gears. Now I'm coordinated for dancing. Now I'm coordinated for running. Um, yeah. What did that look like in practice for you when the light bulb went off and you would take that Feldenkrais lesson and then go out and run? What adjustments did you make to what you were doing previously that clearly wasn't working for you? Well, a big one was um, leaning forward. Um, and I and and I had actually been. It's like the one thing that anyone had ever told me about running um, was I had, had taken this amazing kinesthetic anatomy course from a, a woman, Irene Dowd, who taught trained a generation of movement educators and body workers and several generations in New York City. And um, like the one thing she ever said that was wrong was that you should be upright when you run. (laughs) Um, But I, I trusted Irene and I, you know, so I was trying to do that. And then I did a lesson, um, uh, which, which I reworked and I call loosening up to run. And it's the first lesson that pretty much everyone does with me. Um, And afterwards I was just leaning forward and it felt so much easier. And I felt like I had wheels all of a sudden instead of stilts. Um, and uh, so that was, that was a huge eureka for me, um, was that I needed to do that. Um, and then another one um, uh, that was really huge, and it was actually a long time coming, was how to let, it's, it's sort of built on that, but you know, uh, how to let my chest go down and not up. 
when I ran. So you use, you extend your hips, you're using your whole body extensors a fair amount. When you run, you're leaning forward, you look flexed. But in fact, your butt is, because your head is in front of your feet, your butt is holding your head up. And you know, your, your foot is quite far behind you if you're running fast. When it finally leaves the ground, you're sort of stretched out on a forward angle there. So that uses your back muscles um, a lot, your buttocks, your calves, your quads. And as a dancer with dance training, when my leg was behind me, I had learned to lift my chest. That's mm -hmm. an arabesque, right? Um, and uh, that's the opposite of what a runner needs to do. When your foot is behind you, your chest is still moving forward and does not lift. And otherwise, you've stopped leaning. Um, and uh, and you're, you've, you, then you, the force from your foot is not going all the way through your body to your head. Your head is behind that line of force and is getting pushed backwards when you push off. Um, all of that. Every time I do that, my mouth gets farther from the mic. <laughs> so people can probably hear that description. But um, uh, so the, when I finally did a lesson that helped me feel that as, as you know, as you're... As you're um, towing off on one side, um, your opposite hand is coming down and swinging back and that that helped somehow push my ribs together in the front and it let my chest go down instead of lifting up. I felt like there, I felt like somebody had removed a wall in front of me that I had been pushing against without even knowing that there was a wall there. It was this incredible feeling of liberation. And when I did that, my chin got farther away from my throat than it does when I stand and walk. And um, which is something else that they frequently say you shouldn't do when you're running. But um, it allowed me to really lean. I felt like a racehorse, you know, reaching forward with my head. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I make sure people always learn because it's, it's, it's fundamental. You know, like there's a process of figuring out, okay, what was personally for me a huge breakthrough and what is universally needed for everybody. And that is universally needed. No. The dots I'm trying to connect that aren't quite getting there yet for me okay. are what was it in this Feldenkrais lesson that, you know, you heard or experienced that had nothing to do with running mm -hmm. uh, because this isn't a, a method that's specifically geared toward helping someone improve their running technique and you taking whatever you learned from that lesson and applying it to these changes you just described in running, what you were doing, you know, with, with your head, leaning forward, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. So <laughs> again, that my teacher was very fond of a little one frame, frame cartoon of a physicist drawing a, a very complicated ex, um, 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 equation on a blackboard mm -hmm. for a colleague you know, all math, 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 math. And then like a, then like a blank space where he's written and then a miracle occurs and then some more math. <laughs> so, um, as a metaphor for a Feldenkrais lesson. So the, the, um, if you think back to, um, babies, like seeing a baby, um, lying on the floor, <clears throat> maybe on the brink of learning how to roll over, which is, you know, milestone-wise, we're one of the early ones for most, um, or trying to work out how to grab something. Um, there's a lot of 
there's there's movement towards the thing that they're trying to do, but then there's a whole bunch else. And there's a certain amount of playing with the toes and looking around and stuff that looks kind of random, except that the baby seems really engaged in what they're doing. Um, and it's not unlike that, except that when I teach a lesson as a practitioner, there's a deep structure to the movements that I'm giving. I know what it is. My students don't know what it is. Um, that structure helps me make sure that everybody gets there. Um, there, so um, so the lesson that helped me first feel out feel how to lean forward. Uh, I was lying on this loosening up to run. I was lying on my side, and the with my knees bent in front of me. And the first instruction was just to slide my top knee forward. And it was a puzzle. How do you? has forward but my thigh can't get any longer I can slide it in an arc upwards towards my chest or downwards away from my chest you know thinking body directions um, uh, not room directions but how do I do it forward and um, I could move my foot forward that doesn't really do it um, didn't really get it next instruction try sliding your knee backwards well okay so if I think about sliding my knee backwards, I don't do any of those things and my hip moves backwards, my pelvis turns. So if, I, if it's my right leg that we're talking about, then my right side of my pelvis shifts backwards a bit. Aha! So go back to moving my knee forwards. Well, I can just do the opposite. I can just turn my pelvis, roll a little bit so that my knee gets pushed forwards that way. Ah, so I can move my knee forward and back by turning my pelvis. Well, does my pelvis turn alone? No, it's actually, my spine's pretty connected there. Um, so then what happens with my arms when I do that with my knee? Well, interestingly, I feel like my, there's a little push-pull in my hand. So then next instruction, slide your hand forward the same way you slid your knee. And then slide your hand backwards without bending your elbow, same way you slid your knee. Now, try them together all of a sudden my knee is moving through quite a large range of motion because I've added in my upper body and I can feel that I've begun to roll my whole body forward and back. What is my head doing? Good question. It's kind of nodding. Well, so then, then what if I roll my head along with it? What if I roll my head opposite it? What if I make my head stay perfectly still? You don't learn how to coordinate yourself well by only learning the correct things. You learn to coordinate yourself by exploring all the options so you can assemble them appropriately for whatever you're trying to do. Ah, so then, okay. so I've learned something about my pelvis moving my legs. And when I'm standing up, that kind of plays out differently than when I'm lying down. But mm -hmm. the thing about pelvis moving my legs, it's not an idea, it's a feeling that I just got in my body. Um, I haven't put it into words that way. But when I go out and run, I'm doing it differently because I've just had this discovery about my pelvis moving. And, and again, the, 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 the process and because I'm following this trail bread of breadcrumbs, what's easier, what's more comfortable, what's easier, what's more comfortable. Like that's how we're designed to learn. That is how a baby's learning. And um, when you learn something that way, it becomes yours. It, it, go, it, it ends up in this effortless skill category of um, and um, something that's versatile and something, again, that you apply differently in different contexts. And that's what really transformed my running form. And, and it turns out it works for other people, too. <laughs>
what were some of the next steps for you in this evolution beyond what you had just described here? What other changes did you personally have to make so that running felt easier and more comfortable? I mean, I, I there was a way I had to kind of come to terms with I'm going to be a lot more bent than I like to be as a dancer. <laughs> and I'm going to um, not jump up. Like there is, you do jump in running, right? There's a moment when neither foot is on the ground, but that is going to happen in a completely different direction. So those were very personal changes. And these lessons that I've, and I'm talking about helped me feel those new sensations as well. Um, I needed to learn how to, well, I mean, my arms, I think, were already pretty good, but it was a while before I really understood how it could feel how close to my chest my hands needed to be, how bent my elbows needed to be, um, what movements of my rib cage and my pelvis made my, or generated my arm swing and vice versa, so that it all made my legs work better with that by, and reduced my overall effort instead of increasing it. Yeah, those would be really key things. I mean, I'm sure in the early days when I was running upright, I'm sure I was also heel striking. And, you know, then that really changed. Once you start to lean forward and you're turning, you're using your pelvis to help you move your legs, then pretty much heel striking is just over. Like you're just not doing it anymore. Over pronating also comes to an end. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, I think for me, those were the big ones, you know, because I was so inside my own learning process at the time. I think all the changes that I experienced weren't all necessarily conscious. I just sometimes felt better and I didn't quite know why. Did you ever work with a running coach on any of this or did you come to all of these realizations on your own using what you had learned in Feldenkrais? I, uh, on my own. I mean, I, I was, I always triangulate. So I did subscribe to Runner's World <laughs> um, and I did go to Barnes and Noble and look for all the books I could find on running technique at the same time. And there were only, there were three. Um, there was Chi running, mm -hmm. there was the pose method, and then there was um, a program to run. I forget who wrote that, but it was somebody who was looking really at um, kind of the Kenyan running style and had done a lot. Or Thomas Myers? Could that be? No. Or is he the anatomy trains guy? Sorry, I, I can't. It's, it's something like that. Okay. But anyway. Um, and so I was always comparing my experience and discoveries to you know, these things. What you'd read, um, yeah. And fairly early on in this process as well, you know, after I'd already made my big shift and I was really enjoying running and in fact decided I liked running better than dancing and was probably really done with dancing. Um, uh, Daniel Lieberman's paper and, and Dennis Bramble's paper came out in Nature about endurance running and the evolution of Homo. And that was the first time I read that paper and I recognized every single thing they were talking about because I had discovered it in my own body. And that, for me, kind of clinched everything. As a runner at that time, after you'd made these breakthroughs, you just mentioned how you enjoyed running probably more than you did dancing at that point. Were you able to run longer, run faster, run with less injuries? What were some of the the actual like benefits that you were experiencing? Well, for me, like I was because because training and having running goals didn't come before running feeling good, you know, like I was just running to dance and I certainly was not going to 
take, I'm not going to hurt myself running because I had, a, I had a job that I had to be able to fulfill. So, mm. you know, there were no running injuries for me during that phase of things. There were plenty of dance injuries. Every dancer is injured all the time. But, um, uh, you know, the, the thing is, like, running became a regular part of my life, you know, um, uh, you know, like a five to seven mile run in Central Park bridal path, um, which I can still run in my imagination, every rock and stone. Um, and, uh, you know, shorter runs during the week along, um, uh, along the East River. And that just became a practice. But when I retired from dancing, I, it was such a relief not to have my body be obligated to somebody else or to a goal. To just be able to wake up in the mornings and say, I want to do whatever would feel good today, you know, that um, I wasn't at all interested in setting goals or in training. Like I had no ambition for it. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to enjoy myself. And honestly, that's the mode I'm still in. I've run a couple of races. Um, I know the psychology of competition, again, because of my experience as a dancer, and I find that it's no trouble for me to understand my clients and you know what they're dealing with. And now I've been working with runners for, you know, it's getting close to 20 years. So, um, but I never was and never have become that kind of a runner. I just want to go out and enjoy myself. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think even for those folks who are competitive, this is something that I talk to my athletes about all the time. Like if you're not enjoying yourself, there are plenty of other ways that you could be spending your time right now. So make sure that that is at the forefront of it all, regardless of what your other goals may be. Yeah, you know, when I started working with runners in like, you know, New York City, like really type A, you know, very sure. ambitious people. And I just kept thinking, but this is your hobby. <laughs> you know, like I used to have to push myself and tape myself together and muddle through all kinds of problems as a professional did because I had a job. But you're doing this for fun. I don't understand. <laughs> so, <laughs> Every, so. Everything else aside that we've <laughs> talked about this conversation, we'll talk about over the, the next several minutes. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway um, because most everyone listening to this is not a professional runner. And I coach a lot of these types as well. I'm like, this is your hobby. This is something that you are doing in addition to everything else. Don't take, take yourself seriously, but not too seriously. Right. Most of the time. Right. You know, and, and I would add, you know, it's not that, that I very much respect the goals that people have. Sure, and too. I respect drive and I understand drive. And, and I know that we as humans really need challenges. And so, like, I respect all of that. But, it, but at the point at which it becomes, like, repetitively self-destructive, then I think you need to step back. Exactly. I think that's very well said. So take me through these next steps. You are studying to be a Feldenkrais practitioner. You are getting more and more into running. You're connecting the dots between these two things. When did you decide or how did you go about helping other runners with solving their own problems? So, um... I like uh, all my transitions kind of ha happened at once. I graduated from my Feldenkrais training program mm -hmm. as a practitioner. I uh, did my final dance performances, um, 
anyway, 9-11 had happened and everything had changed and arts funding, which was already drying up, was like pretty much gone. And the company I was with disbanded anyway. So, you know, <laughs> kicked out of the nest if I hadn't been wanting to go anyway. Um, and I had still been all through this. I had been working as a personal trainer and I had been tweaking my personal training practice so that it could transition to being a Feldenkrais practice once I was certified. And uh, so I just said about that, you know, and I had become uh, fascinated with running and like, I'm an engineer's daughter, like how is the most interesting question to me? You know, it's not just because I was a dancer that I, I'm interested in technique, but um, like a really juicy movement problem to solve, like can keep me going for, you know, well, it's looking like the rest of my life at this point. You know, I knew <laughs> I had found something that I could sink my teeth into and that would continue to be interesting. And I had was very far from having saw, unraveled all the mysteries about running. And I also knew that what I had unraveled for myself, other runners really needed to know. And and I knew because I was reading, and again, apologies to Runner's World as well. I don't mean to bash Runner, but, you know, just like the popular, again, like I said, people tend to teach the dodgy bits, you know, generation after generation. And a lot of that is what running technique advice is still, um, you know, and um, that's what I What do you mean was, by that, the dodgy bits? Oh, the, you know, the, the things, so again, you know, like what a, what a person does really well, they, they're not even aware of how they do it because it's so spontaneous. The skill is just there. It's the stuff that they struggle to do. Mm-hmm is the stuff that they're aware of doing. And that's where people tend to think that their skill is. And so that's what they teach. Okay. So that's, so they're, they're teaching the really questionable stuff and replicating their struggle in their students or, you know, their athletes. So, and that's, that's my best way of understanding, you know, the advice that I was reading in Runner's World, which I, had come to understand very clearly, Runner's World in the popular press, right? Um, uh, understand very clearly was 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 wrong, um, a lot of it, you know, um, and was also missing the point. Like, um, and so I really wanted to get better information out there. I feel like what I love about running and what I love even more about running than I ever loved about dancing is how human it is. It's a fundamental human gait. We, we crawl, we walk, we run. Technically, apparently, skipping is also another gait. But, we but um, uh, And so when you get better at it, I mean, for myself, I just felt more human. You know, I mean, at that point in my life already, like I had been through so many movement methods in trying to get myself together as a dancer. Um, so much yoga, you know, client technique, gyrotonics, Alexander, you know, like Traeger, everything that was out there I had done practically that I could find. And that was a lot. And it all made me, it, they all, it all had effects, gave me different sensations. You know, there's a certain way that I feel after I do yoga. Um, but after I run... I realize I feel more human as in a member of my species. It's really pronounced, really profound. And I really love working with that more than anything else. And um, so because of that, because I felt I knew things that I really wanted to share, I really wanted other people to struggle less. Um, And um, uh, I decided to focus my... So really from the beginning of having a Feldenkrais practice, I decided to focus on working with runners. What were or are some of the biggest points that a lot of these mainstream publications were missing as it relates to running technique and how they were talking about it to their readers? Um, 
I mean, I think most fundamentally movement of the core. And I ended up coining the term core action um, uh, to as an opposite pole to core stability. And I always get very upset emails when I say that um, because core stability, you know, in a in a in a um, in a physical therapy sense, it has a particular meaning, which doesn't mean that you're gripping your abs and holding your core still, but it is popularly interpreted to mean you are gripping your abs and holding your core still. And um, uh, that's a dreadful mistake um, that um, leads to a lot of runner's knee and a lot of struggle um, and poor performance. So we have two legs, neither one is in the middle, and we're only on one at a time. So if you think back to like action figures that you maybe played with when you were a kid, you know, posable action figures that no matter that you, you, you would pose them and you try to stand them up and they would just fall over, right? Because their core was fused and only their arms and legs moved. So you always had to hold them. Um, and so because they could only balance in a position where their legs were underneath where their fused core determined they had to be, you know? Um, and uh, so that it, so that doesn't work for running. You need to move and you know, research confirms that we do move um, uh, our pelvis in, in three planes, but especially to the transverse plane and the frontal plane. So that is rotating and um, tipping side to side like a seesaw. Um, and then of course these planes are not parallel to the ground because you're leaning forward so they're actually relative to the axis that you're leaning on um like you have to have that and um there's a right amount that too much is salsa dancing um and it becomes wasted energy um but the right amount saves energy by a lot and because um, in my early years, I was working again with, you know, very ambitious runners in New York City who were racing in Central Park, you know, if not every weekend, you know, close to it. Um, there was immediate feedback on, on learning how to do this. And, um, you know, most of them would PR right after learning how to move their pelvis the right amount. So it, it has, that's a, that's a huge thing. And the only person out there I know who also talks about this is Danny Dreyer and she running. Um, and um, I think that's why so many people find that she running helps their knees. Um, there are other places where I have, I disagree with Danny, but um, that's a really key one. He's helped a lot of runners with that. Where in your experience do you see a lot of runners going wrong when it comes to running techniques? Some of the most common things you come across. Um, you know, definitely, again, it's like the core thing. Um, you know, most runners at this, runners used to, when I started, runners were trying to heel strike. This was even before, like now, I think it's really um, it kind of everybody knows and accepts and understands that a heel strike is what we're supposed to be avoiding, you know, thanks to the work of Daniel Lieberman and, and, and um, colleagues. Um, but uh, at the time, people were doing that or not caring about it anyway. Um, so um, people go wrong when they try to change their foot strike 
because your feet land where they have to based on how the, your whole body's moving because you're in gravity and there's, you know, a lot of force um, also because going up and jumping and landing with every step. Um, and so it's like trying to change the tires on a moving car. You can't do it and it's super dangerous. In fact, um, you need to change everything and then your foot strike is an outcome. So that's a key thing. People make big m mistakes with their arms. You know, again, like a, 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 a running technique aphorism that's out there that I hear repeat all the time is, you know, when you're running, you're trying to go forward. And so all your movements should go like forward and back. You shouldn't have any crosswise movements because that's wasted energy, which like on paper, it sounds completely logical, but it totally overlooks how the human body is put together. And, and that the, the torque from the scissoring action of the legs needs to be counteracted by a torque in the upper body. And that's most efficiently done when you've got the good core action, this counter-rotation of upper and lower body, which everybody will have to some extent. But if you really get that to work right, it means that your arms are carried on a diagonal or oval pathway and your hands are very close to your chest. And if you look at any Kenyan runner, this is how they're running, you know, um, so... Uh, uh, you know, that it's, it's been hiding in plain sight. Um, but I think people can't see past their preconceptions. So, pe so people will try to pull their shoulders back, try to lift their chest to have good posture. And lifting your chest is um, incompatible with leaning forward. You can only do one or the other. You can't do both. Mm -hmm. um, and um, try to get their arms to go front to back, try to have a 90-degree angle at the elbow, which is like requires the most work in the bicep of any possible configuration of your arms. Um, uh, yeah, so like that whole stew of stuff is, is all mistaken. Most folks who come to you are trying to solve a problem. I'm curious, what are the most common problems that they're trying to solve through paying some attention to their running technique? Injuries. And usually... Is that the runaway winner? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I love it when people come just for performance, but that's extremely rare. Um, uh, so, and it, it, people come for injuries, and they come for injuries usually after they've tried all the standard stuff and it hasn't worked for them. So, um, you know, like runner's knee IT band is a big one. Um, uh, uh, Achilles problems, plantar fascia problems. Um, to some degree, low back pain, um, yeah, hip flexor issues. I mean, these are really just the most common running injuries. From an experience standpoint, is it mostly beginner runners who are coming to you, veterans, or a healthy mix of the two? It's a total mix, you know, uh, as, and it's a mix at every point. Like I, I once taught a workshop in New York City where I had a beginner runner lying next to um, the American master's record holder in his age group for the 800. <laughs> so, you know, and they both got a lot out of the, they both were extremely happy with the workshop. So it really is the whole range um, because, because, the, because everybody takes the lesson on their own level. Uh, so, um, yeah. Um, I love it when beginners come to me with the, with the, with the technique idea, with the, there's a way to run and I should learn it if I want to run. Like I'm delighted I can get them started, started off right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, most often, you know, the people, it becomes a matter of like, who's gonna, 
invest the time and energy to whom is running important enough that they really will invest themselves in solving this problem. And that tends to be, you know, um, people who've been lifelong runners or many years runners and, um, and they've just got a cycle of recurring injury that they can't break that is keeping them from the thing that they love and from their social circle, you know, because these things tend to be interwoven as well. Is it hard for runners to work on this stuff when they're in the thick of a training program? I mean, if someone's injured and they can't run, they're willing to do anything to get back to it. They've probably got to start from scratch anyway. So this logically just makes sense. But someone who is maybe dealing with annoying injuries, not enough to keep them out, they're still able to run their normal weekly mileage. Can they still address a lot of these technique issues while they're still in full training mode? Or do you need to sort of stop everything and start from scratch? Yeah, I mean, it's really, pressure is the enemy of learning and uh, the enemy of this kind of learning. Um, And so it's really hard to um, rework your form. You know, and any athlete of any kind will tell you this, you know, it's, it's the same thing. It's really hard to rework your form when you're competing regularly and um, and uh, and under pressure and uh, really placing a lot of training demands on your body. Um, and so I definitely, you know, like, again, in New York City, kind of my, my year always ran on the New York City Marathon training cycle because that's what everyone was doing. And, um, you know, mostly like, so the marathon for Sunday in November, my busy months, like end of July, August, September, as people's, the mileage started to go up and people started mm-hmm. to have problems. And I normally find that a lot of people will come in kind of, you know, whatever they're training for at that point, at the point at which they feel like I have to take action now before the demands get too high. That'll work. Or, or starting at the beginning of a marathon training cycle, that'll work. Um, better to do it when you're not training for something, for sure. Because then you can just listen to your body. And focus on it. And um, mostly I would say no to people who wanted to come in the week before the race. (laughs) Um, Unless their situation was, if they did nothing, they were definitely not going to be able to run. Because at that point, well, we may as well try. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Yeah, you can't you can't do any deep work in that situation. You can just hope to hit on the one change that is going to get them through in this situation. When did this pursuit officially become a business for you and you called it the balanced runner and started hosting these workshops and clinics and I do want to dig into the other ways that you go about teaching this on an individual and a group level. Yeah. Um I named the business The Balanced Runner in 2006, I think, but I taught my first runner's workshop in 2003. And, you know, it was always a transition. Like, at at that point, I was making my living from personal training and, you know, again, segueing into Feldenkrais. And so, you know, I just transitioned things through that way and started reaching out more and more actively to runners, you know, starting from getting my certification in 2003 to uh, as a Feldenkrais practitioner, you know, right off the bat, because I had, I was clear to me that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so advertising through New York Roadrunners, networking, um, uh, um, advertising and competitor when it was still a Magazine. Magazine. <laughs> it goes back to then. I remember those days. <laughs> yep. 
It was free too. That was great. I got, I got, I filled some workshops from Competitor Magazine. So, um, so yeah, I mean, in a way, it was always just the proportion, you know, at what point that I named the business and at what point at the proportion of runners hit about two, it was, it was about two thirds runners, one third other people looking for Feldenkrais, mm-hmm. I would say for, um, all of my years in New York City. And then uh, we moved away in 2011. And after that, well, it was kind of the same in Scotland. But when we left Scotland in 2016, I took my business online because I was tired of moving and losing businesses. And that's when I went 100% runners. And are you doing online classes with groups? Do you work with folks individually? Is it sort of a one and done type of lesson? Is it an ongoing series of lessons that you will do with someone? Help me understand that a little bit better. Sure. So I have um, <clears throat> I have a lot of free resources and I have a free challenge, which is a great point of entry for people. It's just balancedrunner.com. Yeah, balancedrunner.com. Uh, um, but it's it's pretty much never a one lesson thing. Um, whatever a person needs to change. Um, usually you need to assemble a whole set of, a whole palette of movement options that are going to meet most of the situations that come up. Um, so I have a, an online course called the Balanced Runner System Online Camp. It's an online training camp. It's six weeks of Feldenkrais lessons and they're also webinars kind of, you know, putting in that intellectual information that, mm-hmm. that people also need. Um, and so that's what most people do. Um, and that lays, that very thoroughly lays the foundation. So that's a sequence of lessons that I've been honing really from the beginning and it starts off with loosening up to run. And uh, so that's all pre-recorded lessons, um, audio and video. And um, then I also do uh, one-to-one coaching. I just this summer started calling it coaching because work is too vague, but I'm not a running coach. Like I, I don't do training plans. I cannot, I'm, it's just technique. Um, but and, that's coaching. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yes, but I don't want people to misunderstand and think sure. that I can create a training plan for them for a race. Yeah, you're not, or pro- even you're not, a, you're not programming. Right. If it involves numbers... Point go to somebody else. Call me. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm your spatial relations person. You are a wonderful numbers person, you know, and, and that's a part of the fundamental skill set of a coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, someone who does programming, right? So anyway, um, yeah, so uh, I do one-to-one coaching um, uh, online. It's a three-month program because we need to do enough lessons. If someone wants to work with me one-to-one, they've either got a big goal or a, a, a really important problem to them and, um, and probably something that they've tried to solve other ways before and is not going to be um, a one or two lesson fix. And so, um, and, it, and the learning process um, is not always completely smooth. And so we just need to have at the outset that we are committing to a three-month process, a new lesson every week, tremendous amount of support and guidance from me. I communicate daily with some of my coaching clients. I have office hours, Zoom calls that they hop on. Um, for some people, you know, they, they don't need so much communication. It just every, I'm there for whoever, I'm there for your learning style, whatever it is mm-hmm. as a teacher. Um, 
And uh, with that, we do video analysis. I have a particular way that I want videos because when I look at video, I'm always trying to get back to what would this look like in person. Video hides much more than it shows. And um, so I'm, try I'm trying to understand what their running feels like, you know, why certain pieces are missing, why they're over-relying on other things, and then what kind of learning process did that person need to get in a series of completely safe feeling steps from how they're running now to just spontaneously running much, much better. When you watch someone run, what do you look for? I look first for effort. And this is why, like, I always tell my, my online clients, like, we don't send me slow-mo because I can't even see effort in a slow-motion video. And, you know, in person is always the best. Um, uh, I'm looking for where and at what points and in what directions in the gait cycle are they, is the oomph, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, some of that I can never even see through video, um, but I've definitely going back and forth between video and real life over so many years, I've learned to infer where it is. Um, I remember the first time I saw Jen Ryan's run in person after watching her on TV and seeing video and, and, and um, Terrence sending me video, um, it was just like my jaw dropped. It was a completely different whole host of things than I ever could have picked up on on video. So um, uh, I'm better at that now. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's effort. And then I'm looking for, I mean, I've sort of defined what I call the, the keys to becoming a balanced runner, these six elements of form. We could pick six other elements of form. Your running form is a single whole body action. And um, so we're just picking out like reference points on that action as opposed to creating a laundry list mm -hmm. of you should, your arms should be like this and your legs should be like this and your, you know. Um, uh, so, but these hallmarks are um, I, uh, you should be leaning forward. Um, yeah, let's go through them. Yeah. If you want to give me the six. Uh, leaning forward, and I, I borrowed Danny Dreyer's phrase of leaning forward from the ankles. I, I, as the years have gone on, I think that second part is less necessary because we clarify it elsewhere. But anyway, um, and your lean is is relative to your speed. So if you're not running very fast, you don't lean very much. Um, uh, your you should be um, your you should have a supple leg at foot strike, so not a straight knee, not a stiff and locked leg. Um, I. Uh, and that is much more important to think about than your foot strike itself. As I've said, it's almost impossible to change. Um, so uh, land with a supple leg. Align your foot underneath your hip at mid-stance. So mid-stance, um, when you're really on your foot, is when you're experiencing the greatest force in the whole gait cycle. You know, 2.5 or usually much more than that times your body weight. That downward pressure is not happening at foot strike. That's happening in mid-stance. And so how you're lined up is very important. Uh, so, like, really, you want your ankle bone underneath your hip joint um, uh, at mid-stance. And um, then um, uh, get your core in action. So have that important counter-rotation. Um, lead with your face. Move your face forward. So, you know, that, again, helps you create that lean and then your chin is moving away from your throat. Um, it also opens your airway and helps you get the more air that you need for running than you did for walking. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, keep your hands close to your heart, uh, which means your elbows are going to stick out, which is fine. 
explain that last one to me a little in a little more detail because everything that I've been taught and experienced says you want your arms relaxed by your side, hands like almost as if they're in holsters, um, which isn't anywhere close to your heart. Nope. Um, So you're... uh there's a thing that hands in holsters does, which can be helpful. It tends to make you roll your shoulder forward, mm-hmm. and that's going to pitch you into a bit of a lean. So it's not a terrible place for your hands. But you want to be unstable as a runner because um, an unstable uh, structure is easy to move. So we want, we want you to be as easy to move as possible, and then your speed is going to increase without your effort increasing. And you do that by raising your center of gravity. So hands by your heart raises your center of gravity. Some Ethiopian runners, like Tiranesh Dababa, for instance, have their hands almost up to their collarbones. I experimenting with that once. I accidentally punched myself in the chin. (laughs) (laughs) This is a dangerous business. Don't try that at home. (laughs) Um, And then your feet, your foot for, I'm, I'm sure there's a law of physics that explains why this happens. I don't know what it is. I just know that is ironclad. Your foot is going to land under your hand. So viewed from the side, if your hand is out in front of you, your foot is going to land out in front of you. Now you need, which is why for very short distances, very high speeds, your hand, you can't have your hand by your heart. You know, in the hundred meters, your hand is going to be out in front of you Mm -hmm. um, because your foot needs to land under you, in front of you very far because you're, center of gravity is moving forward so fast yeah. that it is going to cover a lot of distance between foot strike and mid stance. So every runner needs to land with their foot the right amount in front of them for the speed that they're running, the terrain that they're running, so that it's underneath you at mid stance. And um, a lot of runners, you know, kind of with the new thinking, post-born to run and not heel striking anymore, are trying to land with their foot underneath them. But you can't both land in mid land with your foot underneath you and have it be underneath you at mid stance. It has to land the right amount in front. But for most distance runners, to have the hand not close to your heart but farther out in front means you're going to excessively overstride, create excessive sure. braking force. Your pelvis is not going to be over your ankle in mid stance. It's going to be behind. You're going to overuse your quads. Like a whole host of things go south at that point. So, um, the uh, also the farther out in front of yourself here. So this, again, is not does not completely address the holsters phenomenon. If you hands in holsters, mm-hmm. um, your hands still are very close to your body, and that's another reason why you'll still be able to lean forward when you do that. There's a, lo- a lot of British runners run like that, actually. Um, <clears throat> but um, the more common thing, I think, is 90 degrees, trying to have your arms go straight front to back, um, and the hand, there's a, you know, maybe a foot between the, the most farthest forward point of the hand and the um, front of the body in the forward swing, which means that the foot is going to land at that point. But the other thing that's going to happen is you're, if that's going to push your upper body backwards because when you, the, the force that pushes you off from the ground um, is you're, you're trying to push your whole body forward and that's going to needs to be the whole package of arms, head, chest, shoulders, everything. And so um, that line of force is going to go kind of through the middle. And so if you spread yourself out front to back, um, 
with your hand far forward, um, uh, that line going through the middle is going to push your upper body backwards. So it's going to become almost impossible to lean forward. So the closer to your chest you bring your hands, you'll feel it actually brings your torso forward mm -hmm. unless you are contracting some muscles that you're not aware of that prevents that from happening. And close to heart also means that your hands are coming to your midline, which, you know, so the core action means that your upper body is turning, plus your rib cage is round. It's not flat. Mm -hmm. So your shoulder blades are sliding on a curved surface. And so these two factors mean that your arms are running on a diagonal pathway naturally because of the rotation and because of just the way the shoulder works, um, that would bring your hands to the center unless you contract a bunch of extra muscles to stop it from happening. Rotator cuff, um, romb uh, rhomboids, lower traps, which then pushes your shoulder forwards or your chest forward. So then you've stopped leaning again. Um, and, um, uh, and now you've successfully kept your hands from coming to your midline at the price of a, uh, a whole lot of extra work. Do you need to be careful to make sure they're not crossing in front of you? That is far less of a big deal than okay. having them stop stop short. I mean, most runners have an asymmetry. Most runners will overcross one hand. It's it, I don't I don't see it causing problems. Okay. But stopping even an inch short of your midline uh, has a real cost in terms of your overall form. I appreciate that explanation. I like the package approach. And this is a very holistic thing. And when a lot of people think of running technique, in my experience, the two things they tend to focus on are foot strike, which we've discussed, mm. and then cadence. Oh, right. Yeah. And that. we haven't even touched on that aspect of it. But I'd love to get your thoughts on cadence and how important it is. Because in those mainstream publication articles that we <laughs> read, it's let's aim for 180. That's right. the magic number. And if I'm at 175 or I'm at 185, I need to make some sort of an adjustment. And I'd love to just get your thoughts on, on cadence. Is there a magic number and how should we be thinking about that aspect of it? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the cadence thing always bothered me. You know, I also read the 180 thing and I used to recommend the running metronome and um, all of that. Um, uh, but it always bothered me because, you know, most of what I discovered about running technique, I discovered, you know, experientially on my own body and then triangulated and then same thing in my clients. But cadence never settled at 180 spontaneously for me or anybody else. It was something I had to tell people to do on purpose. And that always was like a red flag to me that there's, why is this not, if it's right, and if, if you know, your nervous system is becoming more and more educated that can coordinate you well and spontaneously in response to your environment, the thing you're trying to do in any situation, and why would you not have a stride rate of 180? And um, uh, so then I was uh, very much relieved to, to see that there's actually, Alex Hutchinson has written really um, clearly on this. There's plenty of research that shows that cadence varies with speed. It's, it's um, you know, when Jack Daniels made his observation of 180, upon which all of, all of our recommendations for 180 are based, he was looking at the Olympics, you know, and he was looking at runners running really quite fast um, and um, and fast for themselves as well. And I think that's a factor in this also. It's not an absolute speed thing, but mm -hmm. it's also like what is fast for you. Mm -hmm. um, 
<clears throat> so, but there's there's plenty of evidence cadence varies with speed. And so um, people should stop trying to do like math <laughs> with a stride <laughs> and run like a 15-minute pace with a cadence of 180 because you can actually get hurt that way. Right. You know, and I've had plenty of clients who have. Um, and you, and it becomes extra work, you know? It's it's inefficient. So I do find if you just let the whole cadence thing go, like if you've got a very low cadence, then there's overall there's stuff wrong with your form and your shoes are probably too soft. Um, so if you're like below 160, then we need to figure out why. But, but we're not going to just tell you to just then just make yourself run at a faster cadence. That doesn't solve the question of why was it slow. Um, I find that my clients, um, you know, my competitive clients, um, who also have the gadget that's tracking the, the cadence, um, if they stop working on their cadence and um, get into the right shoes for them, and um, we do all the work that we do on their form, they tend to spontaneously settle in around 170 you know, and it'll go up for, um, you know, if they, they really start running fast for them. And so when I see that, I'm happy. That's that's interesting, just from a purely empirical standpoint, because that's the case for me. I mean, total end of one, but I found when I'm just out running, I'm generally like 170, 172, or that's what my watch tells me. I never really pay attention to it, but I always like to look afterward. But if I go, like I did this morning, and did a speed workout, I am closer to like 180, 182. Like there's like a 10 stride per minute difference there depending on if I'm running relaxed and comfortable or if I'm still running relaxed and comfortable but much faster. Right, right, absolutely. You mentioned shoes and that is something that I wanted to dig into. So that's a good segue. When Born to Run came out, it sort of revolutionized the entire running shoe industry. Everything went minimalist or at least every company came out with a minimalist model we saw people going barefoot running in five fingers and in the past few years it's kind of swung the other way especially with the marathon now we just saw at the london marathon it was like super shoe city uh everyone had these big thick midsoles and i do want to talk about london marathon you've done some interesting stuff around elite races but how does footwear factor in to all of this well, um, if footwork can really mess you up, you know, I think, I think historically runners, um, you know, have looked to shoes as one of the few um, leverage points on, on their running and on their injury and their form. And um, we're well trained to do that by all of the running shoe industry's marketing. Um, uh, though there's very little research that suggests that, you know, um, you know, super shoes aside, um, that running shoes actually do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think the first thing a runner needs to do is, well, is to make sure their shoes aren't messing them up. Um, in 2014, the American College of Sports Medicine um, did an exhaustive review of all of the research that was available at that point on um, running shoes and injury and released a comprehensive set of guidelines that are excellent and which for me are the bottom line for all my clients, um, which is um, that running shoes uh, uh, should complement a strong foot. They should not do the work of the foot or the work of the body. Um, no, no runner should be running in shoes with motion control or stability components. Shoes should have no more than a six millimeter heel to toe drop. Um, and they should be lightweight and, oh, and they should have a wide toe box. 
And so for me, um, as long as I can get all my clients and students to within those guidelines, which can really be a process for someone who's been running in a 12 millimeter drop mm -hmm. stability shoes with orthotics, which you know, some people do, um, uh, then I know that their um, shoes are probably not messing them up. Um, you can't go straight away into minimalist footwear. I mean, I've got my zero shoes on now. I run barefoot. Um, definitely, that's the way we evolved to run. Definitely, we run best when she, our shoes are nothing but not doing anything but protecting our skin. And um, at at most, and in in fact, actually, they're. Um, like I, I and my family live in minimalist footwear or barefoot. We don't wear shoes with narrow toe boxes, arch support, or heel lift. I've raised my son in those shoes, which has become very expensive because now his feet won't fit into conventional shoes because <laughs> his forefoot's They're too just wide. So wide. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but then even um, you know, even that plantar sensation. Like if I if I have to run in shoes for some reason, it's because it's too cold or. You know, if it's a really sharp rocky trail or something, um, I'm kind of miserable. Um, and uh, there's a company called Neboso now that does textured insoles. They've, they're nothing but just a thin piece of, you know, like whatever, Vibram or something with texture. And you wear them barefoot and they just stimulate the touch receptors on the soles of your feet. And to me, that takes away the shoe misery. Like I'm, I'm practically as good as barefoot. I move much better. And I definitely recommend those for all of my clients. Um, especially those trying to transition gradually out of orthotics and out of more supportive shoes. So, you know, I can tell when I look at a runner from behind, from the um, hips up, uh, whether they're in conventional running shoes or minimalist running shoes because their spine moves differently. It's much more differentiated and supple. Mm -hmm in minimalist footwear and barefoot um, is no question. And there's a lot of research on cushioning and how um, uh, people stiffen themselves in response to a cushion surface. You know, you're landing from the air. You don't know where you are in space. You need the proprioceptive feedback. You need to load your springs that are going to, you know, um, propel your running. And um, and your shoe is, is robbing you of all of that. So instinctively, and you can't intentionally control this, you stiffen all your joints. So now you're running stiffer. Is that making you less likely to get injured? No, it is not. Um, so uh, that's, you know, again, like the boiled down version of that is just get to those 2014 ACSM guidelines, which have, which have vanished, by the way. They have vanished. Like you can't find them. You can't find them. I have them on my website. A couple other people do. Mm -hmm. But they did updated guidelines, I think, in 2018, which were just a list of the different kind of shoes that are out there. Huh. One page. I'll have to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. I can, I can, I can send you their okay. original document. Yeah. Um, so I don't know anything about what happened there, but it would be easy to uh, suspect that the shoe industry had a hand. Um, in that. So, um, yeah, those guidelines, barefoot running is beautiful. Um, I think people are afraid to take their shoes off because of habit and because I think there's a fundamental fear of how wonderful it might be. And it is that wonderful. And um, I also recommend all my clients do a very tiny bit of completely barefoot running, even if they never are going to become a barefoot runner, just to strengthen their feet. 
I find the biggest obstacle to that for a lot of people is just patience. <laughs> um, we're just not patient people societally these days. And as you mentioned, you can't just go from whatever it is that you're wearing to a very minimal shoe because you, you will get hurt. Your feet are you not will. used to that. You're not strong enough to, to handle that. You're not used to moving, you know, in that way. It is a process and it takes time, but a lot of people just don't want to give it the time that it needs to be able to do that or just have a min more minimal shoe in your rotation to do mm -hmm. certain things in. Not everything, but maybe certain things. And, and I found myself like that goes a long way mm -hmm. is just changing the stimulus from time to time and not wearing the same exact shoe every single day. I think there's so much sense to that. And I do recommend that for people that because you, the sho you vary your shoes, you vary your stresses and, you know, and repetitive stress is the enemy of the runner. So, um, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I recommend a two year transition period from like really conventional shoes to completely minimalist, zero drop, thin, you know, whatever. Um, and, um, and that the first shoes that you have to be in completely minimalist are your everyday shoes because you spend way more hours in those mm -hmm. than your running shoes. Last couple things before we wrap up here. Some of my favorite things that you've done recently are these analyses of some professional events that have happened recently. You did one on the women's 5K world record mm -hmm. on the track uh, that just happened in Spain not that long ago. And more recently, the London Marathon, which happened last month. Why did you decide to post those analyses? And what were you looking for when you were watching those runners in those particular races? I, uh, I've been doing these analyses... Uh, for a, a number of years, maybe 2015, I started. I actually, I, the, my first analysis that I ever did was um, uh, I saw in Let's Run, a guy had set the new Guinness World Record for the longest scarf knit whilst running a marathon. <laughs> and I thought to my, you know, because like my joy in life is seeing how people do things, right? And understanding it. And I thought I got to get a look at that and see how do you knit a scarf whilst running a marathon. And, um, and then I decided to write an analysis of what I saw and then sent it to Let's Run and they were tickled. So they published it and then we were off. Um, uh, but, you know, I wanted to talk about how these runners are doing what they're doing. And, um, and the different strategies that I see different runners using because good running technique isn't just one thing. I mean, bodies vary and then intentions vary and um, uh, conditions vary. And so the great runner is the, is the most, is the responsive runner who can optimize spontaneously, whatever the situation. Um, and I wanted, I wanted, you know, like, again, the thing with the hands close to the heart. Well, I, every Kenyan runner runs that way, except Sammy Wanjiru, whose hands were lower. Um, so why, seeing that these are some of the most accomplished distance runners in the world, is like the popular running press not learning anything from that, but still giving very different recommendations about arm swing. You know, that was really frustrating to me. And I, and I did, and I do understand that, you know, to a certain extent we can only, what we see is very much shaped by what we were expecting to see by the preconceptions that we bring to watching and by the things we've experienced in our own bodies. You know, uh, a lot of people can't see whether a core is moving or not because they've never felt their own do it. 
Um, so uh, I, I wanted to shine a spotlight on the things that I was seeing and help other people see them. And again, just with this mission of putting accurate information out there, you know, like a lot of runners are getting hurt by bad advice, by, by faithfully and trustingly trying to follow bad advice, which the people giving it faithfully believe is good advice because they're good people who want to help their runners. Um, and so I just want to feed better information into that system. And um, I thought this was a really powerful way to do it. Um, plus, then I could watch these races and analyze it and call it work. <laughs> <laughs> when in fact, it's the greatest job in the world that I would do for free. Uh, and I have to watch myself that I don't accidentally <laughs> do it for free um, because I just enjoy it so much. When you're watching these races, I mean, you've been doing these analyses for the last five years or so now. So you've seen a few of these runners multiple times. Yeah. And things have changed over the last five years, definitely in terms of shoe technology, but some runners have gotten faster. Runners have changed training. Runners have come back from injury. Are there any that stand out to you like that you've seen or... Are there any that stand out to you where you've seen very noticeable changes in their running form for better or worse? And could we go into that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, you know, just doing this world record analysis, Latessen Bet Gide, and comparing her form to Tiranesh Dababa setting the previous mm -hmm. record in 2008. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find video of Dababa's whole race, so it was just a just a, Short clip. a little under a, a minute. Um, I would have liked to have seen more. But I've been watching Dababa, I've been analyzing Dababa on the roads, really. I mean, I guess Rio, I did, or the, she was in the 10K and the 5K in the Rio Olympics. So I looked at that. Um, but really mostly the races that I analyze are the world marathon majors. I haven't yet gotten in the habit of doing Tokyo, but the, the rest of them. Um, definitely on the roads, but I think even in Rio, Dababa was, had her hands up around her collarbones. Like def definitely on the roads, definitely in Chicago in 2017. And I didn't realize till uh, I went back and looked at this 2008 video that she didn't do that then at all. Um, you know, uh, it was a very different arm swing and I would love to know the story behind that. And if it was just organic, it happened as she went up in distance or if there was an intention to change sure. them. Because I noticed, again, like a lot of Ethiopians run with their hands that high. Some Kenyans, Mary Kaitani's hands have crept up in yep. recent years as well. I'd, and um, Sarah yeah. Hall holds her hands pretty high. Yeah, that didn't... Not, I think, that high, though. It didn't Higher stand than out to most me American runners. I've, I've certainly noticed that watching her run That's interesting. In, I'll the have last, to, in the last several years. I'll have to look at some other video of her. I mean, obviously, what really had my attention was her, you know, her chest, her yeah, breathing. Yeah, she, you know. she does run with her chest up pretty high. Yeah. Um, I know um, because, you know, I've done some work with Terrence Mann's some of his runners over the years and um, we talk and um, uh, see things similarly. Um, uh, I know his whole team, like he really works on that with them, having the hands around the heart mm -hmm. um, and that's hi that's higher. You know, like now every time I see his runners, I think, ah, oh, yeah, looking pretty good there. <laughs> um, 
uh, more so than most American runners. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so that's changed uh, for Dababa a lot. And um, another person who really changed, and I wrote about this, um, um, Bridget Koskai. Uh, I saw, I was actually in Chicago uh, and saw her and got high-speed video, actually, um, of her, um, I think, less than a mile from the finish line, setting the new women's marathon world record. And I had seen her, and I had been on the streets in London the year before for the London Marathon. I had high-speed video of her there. Um, and the, the most um, concrete difference between those two races, and, and I had seen her prior to that as well, the, the most concrete difference between those two races was the super shoes that she was wearing in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But I didn't recognize her in Chicago. And I had to actually do a little looking around on the internet after. Is this like, could there be two Bridget Cost guys? Because, and I looked back at my own London video, it was so different. I mean, there's certain, certain distinctive things of hers that were the same. She keeps her elbows very bent and she takes them way behind her. So she's still doing that. Um, but she um, she's using her butt a lot more than she did. She's um, Her hips are a lot more forward um, relative to her feet. I mean, I think, I could never quite pinpoint it exactly, but I think she was sitting back and she was just more flexed overall in London and prior. But um, wearing these what, next percent whatever things, um, she was much more up and forward. It's faster form, no doubt. And again, I'd just be super interested to know um, if that was entirely just her response to the shoes. shoes. Or if she worked on it. Or if she worked on it, yeah. yeah. How about someone like Elliot Kipchoge? Have you studied him much? Oh, he's so, he's so consistent. Yeah. Um, I actually, something, and I've written about him a lot. Like Elliot Kipchoge, Mo Farah, Mary Kaitani, you know, these people I've written about. I'm actually kind of bored of writing about them because they are so consistent. Mm -hmm. um, and I've written about them so many times. Um, uh, but, I mean, Kipchoge, like, you know, so the core action, I say, is, you know, in the, the frontal plane, so tipping side to side, and the transverse plane rotating. <clears throat> and um, different runners combine those two planes of movement in different proportions. So... Um, Kipchoge uses the frontal plane a lot. There's a lot of side-to-side -side action. Um, uh, not that there's a big motion, but he's not one of these runners who turns his pelvis a lot and who is using the transverse plane a lot. Um, and it, it gives him this really um, crisp forward lean and relationship between his feet and his torso. And it, it, well, really between his feet and his head. He's just like like a knife you know it's just really clean um whereas uh Kenanisa Bekele uses much more rotation for example um and it, it puts Kipchoge a little more on his forefeet you know and all of that has shifted a bit I think probably since his track days I wasn't doing analyses back in his track days so mm. you know I'd have to go back and look at video but um I think he's gone more and more in this direction and I actually think his pelvis is moving a bit less than it did um which which um surprises is another thing that I want to go back and really look at um but that shift may have happened but he's really pretty consistent over time 
last question before we wrap up here. You have a lot of resources on your website, balancerunner.com. You have a YouTube channel where you, I've noticed you've been doing more and more mm-hmm. recently, especially given this the state of the world uh, these past several months. What are, and if you hate this question, just tell me and you don't have to answer it, <laughs> but what are three to five things that someone listening to this can pay attention to as it relates to their running form and try to work on moving forward? Right. Um, I, my YouTube channel is a little bit dangerous because for a while I was doing a video a day when we were in shelter in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just overloading the intellectual capacity. <laughs> and it, it, uh, uh, you know, and often, you know, trying to override movement habits. So I, um, you know, deaf people can look at that for information, but the, the, I would really recommend, I have two free resources on my website. Um, and one of them is just on the homepage. There are three, like if you scroll down below the picture of a bird, there are three sort of boxes and one is get your core in action. One is forget your foot strike. And one of them is become a balanced runner. So that become a balanced runner will give you like a short, it's like a seven minute audio track talking you through the balanced runner keys, those six elements of form that Mm -hmm. I described for you. Um, But not um, guiding you to try and do them because I don't recommend that you do them. If they're not already happening, it's because you're doing something that you're not aware of that is interfering. And um, so you don't know what to change. Um, but what that what I talk you through in that audio is what they all are and how to find one that is happening already. Um, and... Um, it's going to sound like lightweight, but, and to enjoy it. <laughs> you enjoy it, you notice it, because notice, just noticing makes changes even if you're not trying to change. Mm-hmm. So you just notice it, you just enjoy it, and you see if that causes another one of the keys to appear, which it nearly always does. And so you enjoy that for a while and maybe a third one kind of starts happening all by itself because they're all connected to each other and reinforce each other. So you just start from what you've got and you um, just pay a little bit of attention so that you're giving your nervous system the um, information it needs to start to allow yourself to um, uh, shift your whole form such that others appear. So... That's going to be, that's really the safest way, um, short of doing an actual Feldenkrais lesson, to work on your form where you're at right now. Anyone could do that for today's run or tomorrow's run. There's also a free Mind Your Running Challenge um, available on my website or at bit.ly.com slash mindyourrunning, um, which is a 10-minute audio every day for a week, okay. talking you through a little bit more about how to find these things in your form, how to discover your core action, how to start to let it happen better when you're running. So not quite Feldenkrais lessons, but almost. It's experiential. It it really helps a lot of people and it will take you farther than the balanced runner scan that I first recommend. So those are the two things that I recommend that people do. Well, at the end of the day, it comes down to enjoyment as we talked about earlier and you just alluded to right there. I find your work really fascinating. I encourage everyone listening to this to check out balancedrunner.com. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me today. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. 
Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Gatorade Endurance and Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode. I've been using Gatorade Endurance formula before and during some of my workouts recently to ensure that I'm adequately energized and hydrated. And so far, so good. I love the watermelon flavor, and it's also available in lemon lime, orange, and cherry. Check out and try some of Gatorade Endurance's different options for yourself this offseason. Use the code SHAKEOUT20 and get 20% off your purchase at GatoradeEndurance.com. That's GatoradeEndurance.com and use the code SHAKEOUT20 at checkout to get 20% off your purchase. I've been using Inside Tracker to keep tabs on my blood work the past two years in an effort to optimize my nutrition and subsequently my health, performance, and recovery. Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood and DNA biomarkers along with your lifestyle habits to help you optimize your body and reach your goals. As we head into the holiday season, take advantage of Inside Tracker's best deal of the year and take control of your health and wellness with $200 off the ultimate plan, which is their most comprehensive package. Use the code GIFT FROM MORN SHAKEOUT. That's GIFT FROM M O R N SHAKEOUT at InsideTracker.com or check the show notes to make sure that you get it right. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown, which I co-host with my friend and colleague Billy Yang, and I offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. Last two things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Finally, if you're digging the podcast, I think you will love the Morning Shakeout email newsletter. Every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a short collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to, and you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.